This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens, Regeneration on Radio. Each week we talk with somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. This show is co-hosted by Shane Gallagher, who's not here tonight, and me, Samuel Mann. Tonight, seeing as it's been in the news a bit, people talking about transport and sustainable transport and the issue that that brings up, which characterises the the car parking response, I thought we might look in the vault and see what we can find with people talking about sustainable transport and urban street design. So we'll go straight to the top and we shall start with Sky Duncan. By the big US cities. And so that's what they did. They created what was called the Urban Street Design Guide um, that has since been endorsed by 50 cities and nine states and now the US federal level is looking and agreeing that yes this is the type of guidance design guidance for our streets we want in our cities um, and they have it's, it's really great because people can email each other with everyday problems and say listen I'm trying to put a bike share station on a hill and I'm having issues with drainage and accessibility how did everyone else solve this and a little email club goes around someone says hey well actually we had the same problem in San Fran, here's what we did. Hey, here's what we did in Philadelphia. And so this idea that we don't have time to reinvent the wheel every time and that we can learn from each other's mistakes and successes is a key part of that kind of network of um, people and practitioners working together. And so that was incredibly successful at the US level. And so Jeanette called me up one day when I was working at the city and said, hey, I'd love you to come over and apply for this job to essentially emulate that process but on an international or a global scale. Um, and that's how I ended up as the director of the Global Designing Cities Initiative. So where do you start? Yeah, good question. <laughs> I think so. I spent a few weeks and then I was like, what have I done taking <laughs> on this job? How on earth could anyone, you know, try and propose a set of guidelines for how you design streets all around the world, right? From, you think like, Dunedin to Addis Ababa in Ethiopia to New York City, like it's insane. Um, and so I realized very, very quickly one of the most successful parts of NACTO was the network. And so I reached out to all my contacts and, you know, professional network, and we very quickly created a network of practitioners and professionals and city officials and academics who work in this realm around the world. And we, we made them co authors or contributors to this guide we pulled all the best practices together kind of abstracted them a little bit refined them where needed and then started to turn this into um you know a series of before and after of showing people what's possible based on real life projects you know that have 
been built that have been implemented. And so it's essentially, you know, a set of guidance created by cities for cities. And what we realized very quickly actually was that regardless of if we're talking about streets in Dunedin or Addisbar in Ethiopia or Bogota, you know, we're all quite different. Our contexts are quite different. But fundamentally, each of these places are about human beings. And so regardless of our skin color or our accent or the language that we speak, we're pretty much fundamentally roughly the same size. We move roughly at the same speed. We have the same human senses. And so the whole premise to shift the hierarchy that, you know, that we've been designing our cities for 50, 60 years with the car at the heart of all of our design and policy decisions. And it's, it's insane when we look at all the numbers, it's ridiculous. So if we actually just invert that and put people first, a people priority approach to designing our streets, public spaces and our cities, it doesn't matter if we're in Dunedin or Bogota or Addis Baba. And so that became the underlying principle through the whole set of guidance. And that's the biggest hurdle we're doing is inverting that hierarchical pyramid where the car has been king to now put the pedestrian as the queen or king of, of of the public space of our cities. And then to prioritize sustainable mobility choices like cycling and, and transit, you know, public transit, then making sure we can deliver goods and provide city services. And when we have space, then we give that space to the private car. And this, of course, is insanely controversial. I was going to say, because it's a contested space. Yeah. And there are people driving around with big lumps of metal that are a tonne, three tonnes more. Yeah. And it does seem to be a might is right and speed is right attitude. How do you overcome that? It's actually pretty basic. We just talk about a lot of the numbers that are out there. Um, Speed is one of the number one killers on our roads. Um, I think in New Zealand last year, 328 people died. And I think I saw the news last night, 2017, we've already surpassed that, right? And we, we can do something about that. We can lower speeds and we can make our cities safer. So there's a whole speed argument um, where it's it's one of the 10 leading causes around the world. So we have 1.25 million people um, are dying every year. It's equivalent of one person every 30 seconds dying on our streets around around the world. So that's, that's somebody's child or mother or family member or friend. And we have the power to avoid that. It's totally preventable. So one is just the fundamental need to save lives and, and to avoid these preventable deaths. Um, so, I, I mean, I can talk for hours about the numbers around road safety, the environmental side of it, right, that our cars and our modes of transportation are contributing to carbon emissions and our climate. And I know this is also contested, but less so as each year goes on, all the challenges around climate change. And we're seeing even the East Coast with that five hurricanes coming through and destroying environments. Cars and transportation are one of the key leading factors to climate change and our carbon emission levels. Public health around chronic disease, physical inactivity, another one of our global leading causes of death. 
we've designed physical activity out of our daily lives. You know, we drive everywhere rather than walk or bike. Um, but one of the most powerful set of numbers, I think, is when we talk about the efficiency of space. So, you know, we can talk about road safety, public health, environment. Um, but if you look, if you take three metres of space, right, and that's essentially what a standard travel lane is, ideally. If you look at how many people we can move by cars, by sidewalks, by bikes, or people on foot, people on bikes, in that three-metre space, private cars is the least efficient way that we can move people. So actually, if you think of an equity standpoint, or the fact that all of us are taxpayers contributing to the design of this public space, if it's only serving one user, which is the person in the car, we're really not being very smart about how we're investing that money. And we, are, we often talk about the street, the, the, the street, almost like real estate, right? When we think of the value of real estate and you get down to the square inch or square meter of space and the value of that, if we applied that same way of thinking of value to our streets and we understand that they have to help treat our water and improve our air quality and move as many people and help our businesses flourish, the numbers all very much show that making them all for private cars is not the right move. It sounds convincing, but somehow we have to change the narrative to one that accepts that and not start with, but this is going to take away five car parks. Yeah, so a big part of what we do is actually collecting metrics. And um, we know that, you know, what was Mike Bloomberg, who's our funder through this at Bloomberg Philanthropies, he always says, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it. And so... Absolutely. You take away five car parks and I guarantee in most places everyone starts complaining and their business is going to go under and what have the rest of you. So what we do in many cases is we say, all right, we'll trial it. Let's, let's see what happens. So we can take away the car parks and this, you know, Copenhagen, Melbourne, they've been taking away 2% of car parks every year for the last 30 years. And then we measure things. So this is what we did in Times Square, right? We closed it. They say, you're going to close Times Square, one of the busiest intersections in the world. You're insane. And Jeanette, our chair, was like, okay, well, we'll trial it for six months and let's see. If it works, we'll keep it. If it doesn't work, we'll give it back to all of the cars. And so they measured the air quality. They measured the businesses. They measured... Uh, qualitative if people preferred it they measured they put gps's in the taxis and the buses to measure the average speeds of the vehicles they measured the safety all the numbers were positive less people were injured less people were dying vehicles were actually moving more efficiently uh, not faster that's a different way of thinking right more efficiently uh 74 of people preferred it businesses did hugely well and so then you can go back and say okay well let's make this permanent Right, because there's always naysayers, and so if if we trial it, and then we can see. Often, what we found is actually businesses do a whole lot better when they're not lined fully with car parking, because it's actually the space of one empty metal box. The metal box doesn't spend money; people do. So, if that space is instead a space for five or ten people to sit, or a few people to park their bikes. You know, and you, you want to think creatively about that curbside management. We should get more people spending time on the street, enjoying the spaces, buying more coffee, buying more things. 
Um, and it, the numbers often show, not in 100% of the cases, but the numbers more often than not show positive outputs when we design for multimodal use and not just for movement, but for people to stay in our streets. Is that trialling it something of a general approach that it's worth giving it a go? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, so we're now, you know, this was a lot of what we started in New York City. We've seen cities around the world doing similar approaches. Um, we're now working in five cities around the world doing similar work. So two, gosh, no, probably about three weeks ago now, I was in the city uh, Fortaleza in the north of Brazil. We took a whole downtown area that was a car park, kind of, kind of a road. It was a mess, complete mess. And we transformed it over 72 hours, painting through the night. Um, it was meant to stay there for 15 days. We collected all the metrics beforehand. Um, we're still in the process of, of doing the after. But people were saying within hours that they wanted this to stay in and become permanent. We had one business owner say he'd only ever seen fights out in front of his store. And he'd never seen kids playing. And now they were out there and enjoying the public space. Another woman took it on her own initiative to start a petition. She collected six, well, this was a few weeks ago, so maybe more, number of signatures to say that, six pages of signatures, to say they wanted this to be permanent. So the key is we're always going to have those five taxi drivers or those couple of businesses or a few people saying they hate change and they don't want this to happen. And when we talk about metrics and evaluation, what we really want to do is collect more data and more information to have a fair conversation about this. Say, okay, fine, maybe four or five taxi drivers, this is harder and you hate it and it's the worst thing in the world that's ever happened. But you know what? We also spoke to 300 people and 84% of those people said they loved it and wanted it permanent. And that's often not what we're not very good at is having that fair conversation about how to, use this very disputed space called our streets.
Queen's I'm in love with my car there as a bit of a foil perhaps from what Sky Duncan was talking about Sky is or was when she was talking to us the director of the Global Designing Cities initiative based in New York let's hear from Han Pham a designer I'm going to go back to the city watch and okay. I'm going to throw a word out there called muscle memory. And I'm just going to say muscle memory because you're going to, when I finish the story, you're going to apply muscle memory to sort of what I say. Um, with, with City Watch, the reason why it was a little bit, you know, difficult to adopt, even though it is a great concept that we validated that could work together, is because um, in the end, it would mean action, right, on the part of the city. They would base decisions based upon this new technology. Um, but the thing is, is that, um, even though this monster flood ha- is happening more and more often, that um, it's not going to happen enough for for you know you to have a fire drill around there, develop muscle memory about how to use use it, right? Um, and so, if it's it's we can probably drill the city staff on it. But the point of you know City Watch is that it's connected to the sort of citizen force, um, and you know what's in, what's the incentive for them to be able to use it. Um, you know, or if, if 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 this crisis situation isn't happening, right? They they haven't had the ability to develop this cognitive or muscle memory around creating a naturalistic behavior of um, doing this type of reporting, or um, in this case, taking a picture um, in, in the way that it feels meaningful on in their everyday life. So what you just presented with asking this question of sort of the long term, you know, like it. These are long-term things that when you look at it from an eagle's eye view, it is actually at a crisis point. But how does it, how can we make it feel like it's a crisis point, right? And then so on this sort of continuum that I'm just presenting is that if on one hand, you know, on the right, we have these, you know, this long-term slow movement toward a crisis. And then, um, in the center, we have a crisis. It's, it's pluvial flooding, right? Saline, it's media. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, we just have everyday life. And it's trying to actually create some sense of muscle memory that connects. Some sense by muscle memory can be a sense of awareness, an action, something that connects across all of these. Um, and then so that's that's what I think the city of Dublin um, and Trinity and Intel realizes that even though this was an epic challenge that we wanted to create a technology around that would actually meet it to save lives better crisis you know, management, we realized that what we needed also is to help the citizens of Dublin, Dublin develop muscle memory around you know, this type of behavior, this type of collaboration relationship with the city of Dublin where we test the city watch concept um, of data fusion and participatory sensing on a smaller scale that made sense to in, in your everyday life. Um, and the way that they're doing it and they're, they're continuing to develop this concept um, was, uh, you know, to do it around sustainable behaviors, to do it about, you know, how people envision their city, um, you know, with green initiatives that they actually want to take a part of with now. You know, it it could be about being more creative around um, bike routes. You know, um, the the city of Dublin is massively going to reconfigure, um, you know, their their transportation strategy within the city center. Um, That's going to mean a lot of changes in the next 10 years. Um, and then so it's really meaningful. You know, you might think, what does bicycling have to do with it? But it's actually connected to larger changes that are occurring, um, you know, within sort of urban planning. And then also within, it's connected to this long-term idea of how can we introduce more sustainable um, mobility behaviors, um, you know, 
that that feels comfortable for people. And it's not just about you know waving the flag and saying you're supposed to ride a bike or you're supposed to buy, you know, an electric car. It's 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 about thinking about well, you probably don't want to get stuck in traffic. You probably want to go around it, or thinking about how does it connect with everyday values, right? And going back to sort of um, your example about there are people who care about sustainability, but that's not the only thing. You know, they care about their communities. Um, they 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 might. I'm not going to uh, you know, but you can imagine there's a list of many things that they care about. And then I think the important thing is to always embed sustainability yeah. within that within that larger list of who we are, because none of us ever want to be defined by only one thing. Unless we're a millionaire, but even millionaires don't want to be defined by being, you know, just rich. But in terms of the the everyday life, you, you, the, the word you says it makes sense in your everyday life, mm-hmm. and both poem, well, poem is about your personal comfort in the workplace. in the workplace, and the, the the benefit of contributing to City Watch is my house isn't going to get flooded. Mm-hmm. What do we need to do, though, to lift that to a, a community benefit, the, the altruistic benefit? Or it could be that it's not even benefiting me at all. It's mm-hmm. benefiting people, entirely different people. Mm-hmm. So how might you conceive of City Watch is if, if I'm doing this reporting and it's got no benefit to the people in Dublin at all. I don't know Dublin's geography, but mm-hmm. it's, it's to the benefit of the people further down the river. Mm-hmm. Or if, if it could be that uh, I can think of a case of how you might adopt the, the, the poem, it could be, I can't actually think of what the model is, but it might be that I'm reporting the, the comfort of the people, and it's affecting the people on the other side of the building, not me. Mm-hmm. Because lots of the, the challenges of sustainability and, and living in this world is it's, it's not about improving my life. Mm-hmm. It's how, how do we make that jump to how do I improve somebody else's life? Mm-hmm. So how might we engage people in that narrative of improving other people's lives? Hmm. I think you brought up two two thoughts um, in, in my mind, and and I, and I think that's actually a very that's a very difficult that's a very difficult question um, about you know how can you drive positive behaviors in a way that it benefits others. I, I think that some people, it's nice to think that people would naturally do that. Sometimes they won't. I think it's, it's, it's important to root that there is some sense of benefit, even if it isn't. And, and that's the great thing about motivation, is that moti- there's just a huge scale of what motivates people. And what motivates people can be a sense of um, community contribution. So that's, you know, definitely, I, I don't necessarily think that um, that's not happening, but I, I think um, it's not, you know, I think it's always useful to ask the question of why Why would you do this and what sense of benefit do you get um, and to be able to make it easier for them to do it. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who goes along with you. If I get drunk, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I heave up, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's heavering to you. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more to be the man who walked a thousand miles to fall down at you. 
See, walking 500 miles, perfectly reasonable. Before that, we had Han Pham talking about driving positive behaviours in a way that benefits others. Let's hear from Vicky Buck, who we talked to in 2017. It seems to me that it's self-evident that if you live on a planet, that you don't stuff it up. (laughs) (laughs) that you're here for a relatively short period of time um, and what you do makes can make a difference and if you don't do that then you've stolen from everybody else on the planet and you've defrauded the following generations so um, I don't even know where it came from it just seems so apparent (laughs) how can I not know that (laughs) were you an environmentalist at at school? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I've always been an environmentalist. I don't think I understood how rapid and dangerous climate change was to all of us, um, regardless of where we live and how it affected people grossly unequally. Um, till probably, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? It wasn't last week. <laughs> And it probably wasn't when I was nine, so <laughs> sometime in between. 
so I'm just between nine and last week, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know what sort of council you've got, but is, is, is it hard work? You're pushing that up no. on the council or you, no. the council no, it's gets qu- it? It's actually, it's actually um, this council and the previous one have actually been quite green um, in terms of um, their environmental concerns. So, um, um, so the the awareness of um, climate change is very real. The importance of the quality of our water is felt strongly, um, and the initiatives that we can take, uh, like watch the space later this year for electric vehicle fleets, um, for entire compact vehicle fleets that we've been working on for a couple of years. Um, we've got the autonomous electric vehicle out being trialled at the airport, which has been great fun. Um, and so those sort of changes that make possible quite different dimensions are fantastic. We're spending over the probably over a five to seven year period about 150 million on retrofitting the city and cycle lanes, so that when you uh, ride a bike you feel safe because you're separated from the truck <laughs> or the car and I think for a lot of people um, that's incredibly important that would make that makes me ride a bike as opposed to uh, not ride a bike if I feel safe and I think that's quite a different perception for women than men sometimes and some of the research I've seen suggests that uh, but when you've got a city that's already fitted out uh, retrofitting it with cycle lanes is a <laughs> interesting process that requires a huge amount of public consultation and you have to take the public along with you. So it's not something you can do in 10 minutes, but over five to ten year, five to seven year period will happen. Um, obviously you'll see in the central city that the speed limit is 30 k's, that the emphasis is on walking and cycling. Um, we've just put some money on to extend our bike share so that it's citywide, this one in the central city, but needs to go citywide as a means of public transport, so your helmet's there, your bike's there and you can leave it wherever at any of the other hubs. Um, yeah, so there's a, I mean, from our point of view, uh, obviously insulation has been seriously important, and one of the things, especially in a climate like this, one of the things we've been really, really wanting to do is to increase the building code standard. Um, so in the district plan, we wanted to raise that to about six stars, six green star. From the current building code, which we think would have added about $1,700 to the cost of a building, but ensured the well-being of children and their health and education and all sorts of things, um, uh, the government unfortunately wouldn't allow that to go through in the replacement district plan, so it's, it's not there. So you win some and you lose some. <laughs> to
with a baby walk of shame here is susan crumdike i am pushing the comfort zone of the engineering professions to challenge um, them to take on this responsibility now on one hand what you'll see is you'll see well we already do sustainability engineering right we already do recycling and and that sort of thing and that is true but it is at this point the work that's being done is much more of a bolt-on to existing unsustainable systems than it is really boldly taking on the big unsustainable systems. So I want to work with, and this would be pretty active, wouldn't it? I want to work with every oil company to help them as a sunset industry figure out how they wind down, how they make a good profit out of that, and how they how they wind down their production to meet that 80% reduction target and what they invest in next that... Um, uh, that makes sense. It must be pretty confusing for people hearing all of this of you and to phone up and be talking about something quite exciting and green energy, hydrogen cells or whatever it might be, and have you say, actually, that's not what we do and that's not going to help. <laughs> that is actually one of the harder parts of, of the job that I do. But I do it from a point of knowing what I'm talking about because I have worked in solar, in wind, in biofuels, in hydrogen, in algae, in carbon capture. I do actually know what I'm talking about. I wish those were all miracle solutions. I really do. That would, that would be nice, <laughs> but they aren't. And so, um, if I can help anybody not waste any more time on those, if I can help any engineer not waste the 10 years that I wasted on hydrogen, um, then that gets us closer to, to real change. You see, the transition is about change. It's about changing engineering. And if you can change engineering, you will change the world. I can guarantee it. <laughs> Should we not be exploring those things? One of them might be a miracle. <laughs> and you might win the lottery. <laughs> okay. Shouldn't we be exploring them? Okay. What I would say to that is if that makes you comfortable, I mean, as a society, we spend money on other things, which are a bit frivolous, right? If that makes us comfortable as a people, just to cover our bases, just in case, what I would say is we have enough people doing that. We have, we're have we covering that base. What we need now is an investment in transition, an investment in change, an investment in addressing what we are not doing right. So, yeah, so go ahead, keep, keep those people working if you like, but, um, but, I have a new one for you. <laughs> what motivates you? Um, okay, I have a funny little story on that. My uh, my son, I have a lovely son, and um, he has been quite Keeps aware. The on, apparently, though. He <laughs> he's not the worst offender. <laughs> Daughter is. <Yeah>. Never mind. <laughs> um, he he has been aware of all of this since he was a youngster. He was active in his environmental club and, and you know, memberfree50.org and, you know, an activist himself. And he came to me one day when he was 14 years old after having a, a meeting or watching a, a documentary or something. And he just said, Mom, you have to do something. And this was, uh, yeah, 10 years ago. Mom, you have to do something. Well, darling, I am. I got a PhD in energy. I'm, I'm doing research in renewable energy. Um, I'm educating students to, to be able to do efficiency in buildings. And no, I mean, you have to do something. <laughs> and so we started talking about it. And he says, look, I, 
you know where this is all going. Don't, don't you know? If we don't, if something doesn't change, then, then it's going to be really bad. <laughs> and I said, yes, I know that, but, but I'm doing what I can. And he says, you're not. You have to figure out how to change things. And that was actually the start of transition engineering. I took that to heart and I said, okay, I, I like to think of myself as a problem solver. I like really hard problems and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to take on this problem. There's, there's a future out there where we have done this. We have solved the, you know, something happened now. Something happened and it changed everything. And we will look back on it a hundred years from now. We go, that's a good thing that happened. <laughs> what is that thing? And, and, you know, it's not Tesla batteries. Sorry, it's not, it's not that. <laughs> Remember that Greenpeace advert of the, um, the, the old guy walking across a sort of a salt pan area with his little kid and, and, you know, what did you do, Grandpa? Type message. And yeah. I, I'd like to think that there's a positive side to that story, that some of the things that we're doing have a positive outcome. Of course, it's knowing which of them are. Well, anybody who's trying to work on a positive outcome, of course, is part of, of the positive outcome. I'm just saying that the difference between a future where the experiment that we embarked on a couple hundred years ago plays itself out and it doesn't happen in a nice way, um, that future is out there. The future where people keep hoping for green technology miracles and they don't come, but they keep hoping and they keep telling themselves that story as their civilization, you know, sort of winds itself down again, not in a very nice way. And in the meantime, they didn't change in a way that uh, that made the climate more livable. Um, that future's out there. There is a future out there where something profound changed. And just like today, I could ask 100 people, what do they think that happened 100 years ago that has made a huge difference in their lives as workers and as as people who use products and people who use transport systems? And probably not one of them would say safety engineering. And yet that's basically it. <laughs> the, the, the death rates in American factories 100 years ago was daily what it is annually now. Do you want, you know, do you think safety engineering changed everything? It did. So did environmental engineering. We, we need another one of those changes. And, um, again, I, as far as activism goes, it's my own profession I need to change the mind of, but it helps a lot if society is, is so pushing that are, as well. If you are as most successful as you could possibly be, mm -hmm. no one will recognize it. Exactly. That's a good thing. That it would be a good thing. If, if all of the engineered systems transitioned to, you know, 5% of the carbon emissions we have now in the next 20 years, if that was an engineered transition engineering solution or transition engineering changes, most people would never know. Because that's the job of engineers to make stuff work. And if you notice it, then by definition, it's not working or something. Uh, well, failure is when you would notice it. <laughs> I think that's that's when we usually notice. Like a Donald Norman door. If, if, if a door has to have a sign on it, then the design of the door is a failure. Something like that, yeah. It might have been Camelot for Jack and Jacqueline. But on the Che Guevara highway, filling up 
with gasoline. Fidel Castro's brother spies a rich lady who's crying over the luxury's disappointment. So he walks over and he's trying to sympathise with her, but he thinks that he should warn her that the third world is just around the corner. Soviet Union, a scientist is blinded by the resumption of nuclear testing, and he is reminded that Dr. Robert Oppenheimer's optimism fell. The first hurdle. only noise I hear is the sound of someone stacking chairs and mopping up spilled beer and someone asking questions and basking in the light at the 15 fame-filled minutes of the fanzine writer. Mixing pop and politics he asks me what the use is I offer him embarrassment for my usual excuses While looking down the corridor Out to where the van is waiting I'm looking for the right leap forward Jumbo sales are organised There's still parties to be hosted You can be active with the activists Or sleeping with the sleepers While you're waiting for the great leap forwards Oh, one leap forwards, two leaps back Will politics get me the sack? Waiting for the great leap forwards Well, here comes the future and you can't run for it If you've got a blacklist, I want to be on it And cut out the middle man Right click forward A perfect world with all singing tune But this is reality She gives her love Right click forward So join the struggle while you make The revolution is just a
Billy Bragg waiting for the great leap forward, or in Susan Cromdike's language, waiting for the green miracle, which she refers to as the green myth. Let's finish with Alexa Forbes. Moving my projects forward further on um, at, 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 on the council. Really want to, to embed the transport strategy before I get voted off or give up or die because I, I think it's really important and I think enough people agree with it to carry it. And I've seen enough examples around the world where it has so improved people's lives to get your town centres really livable. And, and, and that means more urbanisation in places like Queenstown too, which is a big resistance too, but I think we can get agreement. I want to get those things across the line. And our waste minimisation and dealing with our, our waste programmes, long-term projects, I want to embed them. So that's my council ones. At Otago Poly, I really need to finish my Masters, my MPP, and there's some real challenges. I'm really challenging some systems and challenging myself in that, so I've got some good work to do there. And I really want to continue. Um, it's, a, it's a challenge working with students and embed our program that we offer. Is, it's, it's on the edge, you know. We, don't, we haven't mainstreamed sustainability or the education for it enough to make it um, really viable. And I want to. I want to make it viable. You've been listening to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on radio. We've been doing a bit of a search of the archives today. Started out looking at transport. We drifted a bit into positive behaviours and into livable cities. People. But I think it all comes together. Story. We heard from Sky Duncan, Hamfan, Vicky Buck. Susan Crumdike and Alexa Forbes. You can listen to the entire conversations with them on sustainablelens.org. The show is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. This is Paul Kelly and Kev Comedy from Little Things and Big Things Grow. I'm Samuel Mann and that was Sustainable Lens. I hope you enjoyed the show. Hard dirt was his flow From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow The range you were working For nothing but rations But once they had gathered The wealth of the land Daily depression Got tighter and tighter The ranger decided It must make a stand They picked up their swags And started off walking At Waddy Creek They sat themselves down Now it don't sound like much But it sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead and Then in the town From Little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Investing man said I'll double your wages Eighteen quid a week You'll have in your hand Vincent said, uh-uh We're not talking about wages we're sitting right here till we get our land. Vesting man roared, vesting man thundered. It don't stand the chance of a cinder and snow. 
Then said if we fall Others are rising from Little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Then Vincent Lignari boarded an airplane Landed in Sydney, big city of lights And daily he went round softly speaking his story To all kinds of men from all walks of life And Vincent sat down with big politicians This affair, they told him, it's a matter of state Let us sort it out while your people are hungry Vincent said, no thanks, we know how to wait From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Then Vincent Lingari returned in an airplane Back to his country once more to sit down And he told his people, let the stars keep on turning We have friends in the south, in the cities and towns Eight years went by, eight long years of waiting To one day a tall stranger appeared in the land And he came with lawyers, and he came with great ceremony And through Vincent's fingers poured a handful of sand From little things, big things grow From little things, big things grow Well, that was the story of Vincent Lignari But this is the story of something much more How power and privilege can unmove a people Who know where they stand, stand in the law From little things, big things grow 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 From Atatago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. 
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.